0: This morning we're going to come back into our study of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. So if you have a Bible, find Genesis. It shouldn't too terribly, be too terribly hard. If you need a Bible, there are black pew Bibles in front of you. Find Genesis will eventually land in Genesis 2, 18 through 25, being there this morning and also next Sunday morning. You may have realized by now that Sometimes I divide text into two sermons because I don't know what it is. Maybe it's I'm just not disciplined enough to cut out what needs to be cut out. But I still continue to convince myself on these chapters of Genesis that these are the most important chapters of the Bible. Therefore, it warrants a careful, close, and maybe rather slower than usual study of these chapters. And so we're going to get into 2.18-25 through 25 today looking at the relationship between man and woman, and then next week going to look more specifically at the dignity of the woman and the dignity and the beauty of marriage, um, as we'll see the first marriage in the Bible here in Genesis 2. So the first chapter of Genesis, you might remember, is an overview of God's creation of the cosmos in six days. At the end of Genesis 1, though, you may remember this from last fall, at the end of Genesis 1, Moses, the writer of Genesis, slows way down. He slows his pace tremendously and zeroes in on day six on the creation of man and woman. Chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is the... And there's a few more verses about what God says to them. I won't read those next verses, but this is the climax of the story of creation. God, excuse me, Moses, God through Moses, uses more words to describe the creation of man and woman than he uses to describe anything else he created. What happens here is so important that Moses comes back to it in more detail in chapter 2. In chapter 2, it's like Moses wants to give us a, a 3D version or view of what God has done here in chapter 1 26 and following. Chapter 2 really is like Moses comes in on chapter 1 26 and 27 and he double clicks on it to expand it, to show us more of what happened there on day six in the creation of man and woman. And two, four through seventeen, as we've seen over the last few weeks, back to the end of last year we saw that God created man out of the ground. He breathed into him the breath of life. He placed him in the Garden of Eden. He told him to work the garden, to keep the garden, to enjoy the abundance of the garden, but to not eat from that one tree, only one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as I said, it is really important for us to remember that in the Garden of Eden, God, uh, God's message to Adam and Eve was a resounding yes to everything. Yes Take it, eat it, enjoy it, have it. It's yours with only one no. Only one no. It's so instructive for us, and we dove into that a little bit at the end of last year. Now, verse 7 of chapter 2, you might look there with me just for a moment. Verse 7 is one of the most intimate scenes in the Bible. The God who spoke the galaxies into existence kneels down, stoops down, and gently breathes life into the man. Then the Lord God, verse 7, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Like lightning turning sand into a beautiful diamond, God's breath turns a lump of dust into a man, a glorious image bearer of God. This was a Holy moment, God making something beautiful out of the dirt. But I wonder if you've ever thought about this. As, as we've studied chapter 2, the first part of chapter 2, we've seen God create man out of the dust, breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, um, put him into the garden, create the garden, put him in the garden, command him to take care of the garden, protect the garden. Give him the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I wonder if you've ever wondered where's Eve? Where's Eve? Where is she in this? Why isn't she part of that narrative, the first part of chapter 2? After all, chapter 1, verse 27 plainly says that God created male and female. So, where's Eve? when God is making a man out of the dust? Where's Eve when he's putting him in the garden? Where's Eve when he's speaking to the man and giving him instructions for the garden? So far in chapter 2, the woman isn't there. She's nowhere to be seen. She's nowhere to be found. They both appear in 127. But when Moses double-clicks on that verse and expands on it in chapter 2 on exactly how God did 127 we learn that the man was actually created first and then the woman later. We don't know how much later, maybe a day, maybe a year, who knows? But when Moses double-clicks on 127, expands it for us, one of the screaming, most obvious things of this text is that man is there first, but not woman. Why? Why is this the case? Why would God do it that way? Well, our text today, 2.18-25, through 25, and then our text for next week, doesn't explicitly tell us why God did it that way, but there are hints and clues that begin to unveil the beautiful picture of God's design of, for, uh, for man and woman, of God's beautiful um, ordering of man and woman's relationship the beautiful picture of oneness yet difference, unity yet diversity, of beautiful complementarity between the sexes, complementarity without competition between male and female. We'll see lots of clues as to why God did it that way in our text. But before we go into that, I want to stop and say this. This topic of gender in general, and gender roles in particular, is fraught with difficulties for many of us. The Bible's teaching on gender roles is beautiful, freeing, life-giving, but it's a touchy topic because many men have used this teaching in satanic ways to harm women to undermine God's beautiful design. So as I begin preaching on this today and then even further next week, I understand that your experience will color what you hear me say. If you grew up in an abusive home or have been in an abusive relationship or seen the Bible used to justify wicked behavior that's harmed women, I am so sorry that that's been your experience. I grieve with you. You're not alone. God sees you and he loves you so much. He sees those who've done those evil things to you and he will talk to them one day face to face. Nothing, no one gets away from anything in God's universe. Men who twist scripture to abuse and harm and demean women are wrong and will talk to God about their wrongness. The ugliness, however, the ugliness of many men's actions does not negate the beauty of God's design. This topic is beautiful, but it's touchy, as I said, because of what so many of us have either been through ourselves or witnessed in our homes or in those we know and love. This topic is littered with landmines around every corner. I want to also say that if you have questions about anything I say today or next week, please come and see me. Grab me in the hallway after church. Email me, john at prestonhighlands.org. Grab one of our elders. Talk to us. We would love to help and shepherd you in any way that we can. Now, here's the main question I want us to answer and dive into this morning. Uh, As I said, Adam is created first, Eve second. Although in 127, it says male and female are created. When Moses double clicks on that, we learn in chapter 2 that it's Adam first and then later Eve. So why? Why? That's my question. Why did God create Adam first and Eve second? Why did God create Adam first and Eve second? Lunchtime is going to be a lot of fun for us at the Cyper House. Pray for wisdom. Why did God create Adam first and Eve second? I think there are at least two reasons. I'm going to give you them one at a time. First, God wanted to reveal man's great need and his great gift to meet that need. I'll say it again so you can write it down if you want. Why did God create Adam first and Eve second? Because God wanted to reveal man's great need and his great gift to meet that need. To reveal man's great need and his great gift to meet that need. All through chapter 1, we heard God say, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. But then in chapter 2, verse 18, God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. This doesn't surprise God. He could have made Eve simultaneously with Adam. But he chose not to. Why? Because he wanted to show the man, his great need. He wanted Adam to sense his problem so that he could savor God's solution to it. God's solution is found at the end of verse 18. God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him or suitable for him. Literally, a helper corresponding to him. First, before that helper comes along, Adam must name the animals in order to discover that There's no helper suitable for him among them, 19 and 20. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. We don't know much about how much Adam understood his loneliness, or his aloneness, I should say. The focus of the text isn't on Adam's feelings. It doesn't say he felt alone or was struggling with loneliness. The problem with his aloneness was something else. There's no record of Adam complaining about his aloneness. Instead, the text in verse 18 says it's God who thought his aloneness was not good. Not Adam. This is very instructive for us. Verse 18... The Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone. So it's possible that Adam didn't feel lonely. We don't know. But it's God who says there's a problem, who says this is not good, and then works to do something about it. So God is the one driving this story. The point of the story is that God cares for his creatures, that God doesn't just make us and leave us, that God sees our needs. Brothers and sisters, friends, God sees your needs. He's not blind to you. His eyes aren't closed. He's not taking a nap. He never gets tired. And if you're his child, in fact, he delights to look at you and know you. He sees you. And he promises to care for you. He sees our needs, and he moves heaven and earth to do things for our good, to meet our need according to his glory. So God is showing man his need, and then he's going to show him his great provision to meet that need. This is the great theme of Scripture God knowing our need then moving to meet it. The scriptures, of course, will later tell us what God did to solve our greatest need and remove our eternal aloneness through His Son, Jesus Christ. Can you or have you ever thought of hell as a place where you will be by yourself forever? Forever. Not hanging out with your friends not watching things happen on the outside while you're in torment. No, torment by yourself, cut off from everything that's good, forever. Complete aloneness. Forever. But in mercy, God sent Jesus to meet us where we are so that we could walk into eternity with him and not into eternity alone. We get heaven, but it's not just that we get heaven in Christ. We get a community. We get Christ himself as our brother, as our friend, as our Savior, and we get a community, a whole army of brothers and sisters in Christ. You will not struggle with loneliness in heaven. You will be forever surrounded by people who love you and cherish you. People will see you and care about you deeper and deeper ways than you've ever experienced in heaven. Can you imagine the glory of that? And as I said last week, our churches are supposed to be little snapshots of that big reality right now. Do you see each other? Do you even know the name of the person sitting on the row with you? Have you prayed with any brothers or sisters this week? Have you called or texted anyone just to see how they're doing? I'd encourage you to do so. Let's show the world a little slice of God's community here on the earth. Christ has reckon, Excuse me, rescued us from eternal aloneness. Here, God is rescuing Adam from his relational aloneness. Verses 21 and 22 tell us what God does. So he tells Adam to name the animals. He doesn't find a helper fit for him. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. He makes woman out of the man and Adam can't hold back his joy. Verse 23, then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He was one, now there two. Perfectly matched. Completely naked, we learn in verse 25. And totally free from shame. Adam's need has been met by God's provision of a helper. She's literally called a helper in verse 18. I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 20. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Eve's First title, if you will, was helper. Now, even though chapter 1 clearly teaches the equality of man and woman, many will come to this text and read the word helper and assume that that denigrates or demeans the woman. They'll say, well, wait, Lord, I thought we were both made in God's image, and now you're saying that one is the helper, and the other is the leader. That's denigrating the woman, because we often use this word helper to refer to someone who's less important. But the word helper doesn't have to mean that. We might use it to mean that. That doesn't mean that's what it means. I don't know if that made sense. It doesn't mean that that's what it means. A helper is simply someone who brings help to someone else. That's all it means. A helper is someone who brings help to someone else. It says nothing about the ontological. There's your word for the weak. It means nothing, it has nothing to do with the ontological or the essence of our being. What we actually are simply names one as a helper. A helper is actually praised and prized as someone who can, can do things we can't do. If you've been overseas on a mission trip or something like that, and you've had to use a translator, you understand how helpless you felt to communicate in another culture where they spoke a language that you didn't know. And didn't you form an incredible bond with that translator? The translators who help missionaries are heroes. Their expertise in maneuvering from one language to another is amazing. We are not the ones lacking Excuse me, we are the ones lacking, not them. Even God himself is referred to as a helper. In Psalm 118, 7, the Lord is on my side as my helper. So if God can call himself helper, surely it's not denigrating a woman to, for him to call her helper. The Holy Spirit is called The helper in John 14. The woman as a helper is an extension of God's strength and help for the man. She is his way of turning not good into very good. Keep that in mind. Verse 18, actually in the flow of overall the narrative, it happens in day 6. Before God declares everything very good, He had said it's not good that the man should be alone, so then he makes the woman. And then after that, everything is very good. It's the woman who's the climax of the whole thing. It's the woman who takes it to this crescendo of very good. Being man's helper is an honor, a sign of strength, an admission that man needs help. Can I say that again? And I want every man just to give a hearty amen. Just pretend like you agree with this. An admission that man needs help. I hope you really believe that. Man needs help. Man needs help. Man needs help. So God made him a helper, a woman. So the first reason why God created Adam first and Eve second was to reveal man's great need and his great provision to meet that need. That's the first answer to our question. Remember our question, our overall question, why did God create Adam first and Eve second? Why did he create Adam first and Eve second? The second reason that he created Adam first and Eve second is because he wanted to establish a harmonious order in humanity. He wanted to establish a harmonious order in humanity. This isn't surprising given, given what we've seen in Genesis 1. and all that God created, He sovereignly made divisions and distinctions. He handed out responsibilities, delegated dominion. Every other aspect of creation has its counterpart. The sun rules over the day. The moon rules over the night. The waters have the fish, the air have the birds, the ground has the animals. These are divisions set in stone, roles that are not interchangeable. Fish cannot be the water, right? Water cannot be fish. These are roles that are not interchangeable, so... It shouldn't be surprising when we come to day six in the creation of man and woman that we find order and distinctions and interchange roles that are not interchangeable between man and woman. These distinctions, as I said earlier, aren't listed out for us as explicit rules in this text. Some of those oughts, if you will, some of those moral imperatives, like do this and don't do this, some of those things will come later in the text of Scripture. But here, what we... Find our foundational assumptions, patterns, and principles. What begins to become clear here in Genesis 2 is that there are distinctions between men and women. And I will say for the record this teaching that I will dive further into is not accepted by and large in our culture our culture will agree wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly with the idea that men and women are equal ontologically. We all can say amen to that. But then when you go a step further and say that that being true, there are still nonetheless different roles that we, that we play as equals. That's the piece that most of our culture, many in our culture, will say, no, 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 no. A woman must be allowed to do everything a man can do. There are no distinctions at all, There's a flattening, a complete flattening of our engendered humanity. So I, I get that what I'm saying here this morning is going to cut against the grain, against what many of us might intuitively think is true or have even been taught. But again, this text is going to say, I think, indirectly, that there are distinctions between men and women between the first man and first woman. The picture that begins to come into focus is that God's design for man and woman is that man is the head of the woman and that the woman is the helper of the man. This is my thesis statement for the rest of our time together. So if you're taking notes, here's what I'm going to try to argue for. God's design for man and woman is that man is the head of the woman and woman is the helper of the man. Man is the head of the woman; woman is the helper of the man. And I will give you seven textual pointers here from two eighteen through twenty-five. One of them is actually in chapter three that unveil this picture of beautiful complementarity. First, first textual pointer: God created man before the woman. God created man before the woman. This doesn't mean that first equals best as if God were picking players for his soccer team. If you had the unfortunate experience that I had many times in school, of being picked last for a team, you don't feel like you're equal with everyone else. Amen? Amen. (laughs) You just don't. But that's not what's happening here. First does not equal best. If that were true, then jellyfish and earthworms would be better than man and woman because they were created before man and woman. Are jellyfish and earthworms better than men and women? No. No. The point is that the order of Adam and Eve's creation indicates that Adam is the head of the garden, and Eve is meant to help him in the work of cultivating that garden. This is why Paul, later in the New Testament, prohibits women from teaching men and holding authority over men in the church. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then here's his reason For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's 1 Timothy 12 through 13. 2 12 through 13. God created man before the woman. That doesn't mean they're unequal in essence. It does suggest that there is a difference in role. Number two, the second textual pointer. The man was created first, so as we learned previously in chapter 2, he was the first one who received God's word. Verses... 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. This is a priest-like task. God speaks his word to the man, therefore charging him to keep it and pass it along. He's going to be the one who's responsible for establishing God's commands in the earth. Adam is the spiritual head and representative of all the people who will come after him, especially his wife, Eve. God gives him his commands first, and after they sin, he also comes looking for Adam first, even though Eve committed the initial sin. Chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord said to the man, where are you? Why? Why does he go to Adam first? Because Adam is the designated leader of the couple. Adam was given God's word first, so he's responsible that it's kept. So when it goes poorly, God comes to talk to Adam, not Eve. I heard J.R. Vassar say in a men's retreat a long time ago, he said... Husbands, you're the leader of your homes. That doesn't mean that everything is your fault, but it does mean that you're responsible. How are you feeling about that, husbands? Single guys wanting to be married? You ready to carry that? may not be your fault, but you're responsible. So Adam's created first. Number two, Adam receives God's word first, meaning he's the appointed priest of the garden and of his home. Third, the third textual pointer is that God gives the task of naming every creature to Adam. I've already read that too, 19 through 20. He gives the task of naming every creature to Adam. Interestingly, he was given this command and able to fulfill it prior to the creation of Eve. Eve's not on the scene yet. And God says, name all the animals. And he does name all the animals. He's able to do it, even without his helper. We also learn that Adam names Eve twice. Verse 23, the man said, she shall be called woman. Then chapter 3, verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve. Adam names the animal, Adam names Eve. This indicates that God has given Adam leadership over the creatures and over Eve. He has naming privileges, if you will, indicating his leadership. That's number three. Number four, the man's leadership is also hinted at in 127, back in chapter 1, verse 27, when God calls all of humankind man, Adam. Adam in Hebrew can mean mankind, a specific individual man, or it can be the personal name for Adam. It's interestingly that he calls mankind, or humankind, man. This hints at Adam's leadership. But his leadership is made even more explicit, as I've already pointed out, that Adam's helper, excuse me, Eve, is called Adam's helper. Verse 18, I will make him a helper fit for him. Then the end of 21, excuse me, the end of 20, there was not found a helper fit for him. Helper is a functional term. As I said, it's not a demeaning one. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. We might interpret helper to mean friend or companion, someone to comfort Adam in his his aloneness. This is certainly one aspect of Eve's role. And interestingly, I hadn't thought of it this way, but we, we might often think of you know, Eve is going to be Adam's helper, friend, companion, you know, compadre, whatever, confidant, whatever. But helper has a more even basic meaning than that. Helper must also be interpreted in light of the creation mandate. Remember the creation mandate? Back to chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So, man can't do that without a woman. God could have provided Adam with a buddy. He could have created another dude to hang out with Adam and be his friend. That could have met the friend need he had. He could have created a fraternity of dudes to give him a lot of, you know, friends and help tilling the garden and taking care of the garden. You know, just manly friends to play with and work with. But interestingly, God didn't do that. God didn't give him another dude. Why? Because he wouldn't have been able to fulfill the creation mandate. He wouldn't have been able to fulfill God's mandate of filling the earth, producing and rearing children without a woman. In order to do what God said to do, there had to be a helper who was not the same sex as him. So God creates a woman. There's an interdependence between man and woman. As even the Hebrew words, ish, Man and Eshaw, woman, suggest in chapter 2, verse 23, she shall be called Eshaw because she was taken out of Ish. There's an interdependence between the man and the woman. The woman came from the man, but the man will be irreversibly connected to the woman. Paul says it this way again in 1 Corinthians 11, In the Lord woman is not independent of man nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man so man is now born of woman have any of you not been born of a woman don't answer that if it if it's you that would be really weird not possible there's a irreversible connection now between man and woman originally First woman comes out of man, but now every single human on earth comes out of a woman. There's an interdependence designed by God meant to help man and woman fulfill his creation mandate of filling and subduing the earth. Now, this interdependence doesn't negate different roles as they seek to rule the earth together. And that leads me to number five. Number five, the man and woman were given different tasks corresponding to the realm in which God created them. I'm going to say that again. The man and woman were given different tasks corresponding to the realm in which God created them. Like, what are you talking about, John? Well, Adam was created outside of the garden and tasked with protecting the garden and cultivating the garden. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Eve was then created inside the garden, suggesting that she was meant to have a special relationship to the inner world of the garden. Man and woman's different tasks correspond to the different realms in which God created the man outside the garden to protect, work, keep the garden, and then woman inside the garden to nurture the inner world of the garden. I love how Kevin DeYoung summarizes this. DeYoung says, The creation mandate, filling the earth and subduing it, applies to both sexes, but asymmetrically. Listen to this and you may not agree with this initially, but just let it stew for a little while. The man, endowed with greater biological strength, is fitted especially for tilling the soil and taming the garden, while the woman, possessing within her the capacity to to cultivate new life, is fitted especially for filling the earth and tending to the communal aspects of the garden. So the creation mandate is for male and female, but it applies differently. It corresponds to how or to where God created each. Man will subdue the earth because he's, generally speaking, biologically stronger. Woman will tend to the inner world of the garden because she's especially fitted for filling the earth and tending to those communal aspects of the garden now correspondingly number 6 is that adam and eve were created in different ways so they created in different realms but also created in different ways which points to a specific ordering of roles between them the lord formed adam from the dust of the ground chapter 2 verse 7 while he formed eve from the rib of the man 21 through 22 adam from the dust of the ground eve from the rib of the man It's just not surprising that man is tasked with tending the ground from which he came while the woman is tasked with helping the man from whom whom she came. Eve was created from man and for man. Verse 22. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. She comes from the man, but she's also made for the man, verse 20. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. She's made from him and for him. They're equal in worth because they're the same substance. They come from essentially the same material, you might say. But they have different roles because of God's different design. For each of them, the way God created each one points to the special work he designed them to do in the world. Generally speaking, man was created to cultivate the external world of industry and the woman was created to cultivate the inner inner world of the family. Now again, I know for many this is a hard teaching. We're like, no, that's not how it works in my family or not how it has worked in my family. That's not what I see. Well, I understand that. But just for a moment, try to let the Bible speak for itself. What patterns do we see? and what's shaping the way we understand one of the most basic institutions on the earth. Generally speaking, man is created to cultivate the external world of industry, while the woman is created to cultivate the inner world of the family. Number seven, finally. The final textual pointer to this different design. The fact that men and women experience the curse of sin in different ways indicates that God created each for a specific realm. The fact that men and women experience the curse of sin in different ways, each in their fundamental areas of responsibility, also indicates that God created each for a specific realm. This is chapter 3, verse 17. Man's unique domain, the ground, is cursed. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Man's unique domain, the ground, is cursed. And then woman's unique domain, childbearing, also bears the effects of the curse. Chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So each are subjected to frustration in their unique and God-ordained spheres of responsibility. And these spheres are two. One, generally speaking, is cultivating the external world And one, generally speaking, is cultivating the internal world. This is why, historically, for thousands of years, men have usually been the ones doing physical labor outside of the home to provide for the family, and while women, in general, historically have been bearing children and taking care of the family and managing the home. This idea, this idea of unique spheres of responsibility, again, sounds foreign to us because our social imaginary or the the way that our society has trained our imaginations to uh, think about reality teaches us to equate who we are with what we do. This is so basic. I wonder if you've seen it. This idea that, that who you are is tied up in what you do. That your identity is inextricably linked what you do with your time every day. And I just want to say that's wrong. It's not true. It's false. It's not that what we do is not important. It's just to say that what we do is not our identity. Some say that to be truly free as a woman, you must do what men do. But then others say that you can't be fully a woman if you're not a wife or have a bunch of kids. Both views are wrong because... Both views locate identity in what you do rather than who you are. So single ladies, you're just as much a woman as a married woman with a bunch of kids or no kids. Amen? Amen. Who you are is image bearer of God, male or female, Professor Alice Matthews says, Whenever we confuse roles with identity, we imprison people in roles that represent only a small part of who God made them to be. For women to love themselves and others, they must realize that who they are is not the same as what they do. Women, do you realize that? Who you are is not what you do. Men, who you are is not what you do. I don't care how great your business is and how much money you make. That's not who you are. Our identity is firmly fixed, as John so strategically prayed, thank you, John, in our being image bearers of God. This is who we are. We are made to rule the world under God's authority. We were made co-rulers of God's world. And then it gets even better. If you're in Christ, the Bible says you're a new creation. So you're not just an image bearer of God uh, just by nature of being a human. You're also, if you're in Christ, you're an ambassador. You're a son or a daughter of God. You're called into this mission that God wants to, as Stephen taught us this morning, this mission where God wants to extend his authority across all the nations. We have a citizenship of the eternal city of God. Those who are in Christ are given an identity that is unshakable, no matter whether we're married or single, one kid, two kid, or or 13 kids. Our identity is image bearer and Christian, and then what we do will vary. So stop judging each other based on what you do. It's just not cool. Start looking at each other as image-bearer, as brother, as sister. Amen? Your identity is given, not received. Who you are is not what you do. Once this truth becomes firmly fixed in our minds, then our hearts begin to open up to these various roles that God calls us to have. Men as primary cultivators of external world, and protectors of the family, providers, protectors, and priests of the family. Women as primarily cultivating the inner world of the garden, reigning and ruling over the home, as household managers, which is a term from the Bible. And that's what I want to get into just for a few minutes. Moments, As I've tried to show from Genesis 2, God's design is that the man is the head of the woman and that the woman is the helper of the man. This pattern flows through the whole Bible, indeed, through the whole world. It's really interesting that pagan cultures, though not necessarily in great ways all the time, but they order their societies somewhat along these lines and have for for millennia. This God-ordained pattern is also why Paul in the New Testament, says that the older women in the church must train the younger women in the church to, quote, love their husbands and children and to be working at home, Titus 2, 4 and 5. This can be translated to be good managers of the household. Paul gives similar counsel to young widows in 1 Timothy 5, 14. I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. This instruction doesn't relegate a woman to only work in the home. Proverbs 31 makes this clear. But the principles in Genesis 2 and the instructions from Titus 2 mean that women are primarily responsible for the domestic oversight of the home, just as men are primarily responsible for the provision of the home and the protection and the spiritual leadership of the home. Women are managers, directors, administrators or supervisors of the home, and this is not a demotion. Only the most skilled and wise and diligent people are called upon to manage organizations. Just think about it. Do you want some idiot managing your organization? No. You want someone with skill and wisdom and strength and courage, right? someone who knows what they're doing, someone who's capable. So when God does this, it's not a demotion. Could there be any more important organization than the family? Just look across the landscape of our culture and ask, could there be anything more important than the family? Families falling apart left and right, and we wonder why our culture is going the way it is? So when God says, hey, ladies, the inner world of the garden is what you're in charge of, is your managerial responsibility, that is a high calling that will have ripple effects in and through our culture and into eternity. Caring for young souls and creating spaces of warmth and peace and organizing a home that will bless others in Jesus' name is arguably the most important work on earth. think about the homes you've been in perhaps the home you grew up in perhaps homes you've lived in which which homes exuded peace and joy and harmony and life not perfection <laughs> not you know not void of chaos which homes exuded peace and life joy Was it the ones with no order? Or the ones with an inverted or confused order? Just experientially, which homes have you seen life? And harmony, and beauty, and goodness. I'd argue it's probably been the ones where a husband and a a wife are trying their best to apply these things and live them out with God's help daily. In a culture that chafes at the notion that God designed men and women with different roles, the church has the opportunity to show the world a better and more beautiful way. Our world is dying to see homes that work. We have the opportunity to create create homes where kids and parents are deeply connected. Do you want that? I want that. And I pray for that all the time for me and my kiddos. Homes where kids and parents aren't deeply connected, not where kids are a burden and just stuck in front of the TV all the time, but where kids are seen as a blessing, they're embraced as a blessing. Homes of peace and productivity instead of chaos and consumption. Our world longs to see something of heaven in our homes. We have a great opportunity, and single brothers and sisters, you have an opportunity to call your married friends in our church and just say, hey, can I come over and have dinner? Yes, invite yourself. And if they say no, call me. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I can't do anything. Uh, Put yourself in context, in relationship, in community, with married brothers and sisters, where you can start to observe and see and, and, uh, and rejoice in the beauty of godly and God-centered homes. Single brothers, are you willing to join yourself with a wife that has biblical convictions about the home? Are you willing and able to provide for a wife and children? Or to say it another way, brothers, single brothers, are you willing to do whatever you have to do to provide for your family? and protect your family, and lead your family spiritually. My single sisters, I I wonder, are you willing to only join your life with a husband with biblical convictions about the home? Not just the best-looking or most charismatic or funny dude you can find, but someone who loves Jesus, the church, the Bible, and a God-centered, godly, home? Are you wanting that kind of man? I pray that you are. I know that this part of God's design is hard to understand and accept, especially in our cultural climate. Often we assume that these roles that I'm talking about, where man is the head and woman is the helper, must simply be tolerated because the Bible says to, says so. Well, I want to, what I'm trying to do. What I want to do is say that they need to be celebrated. If it's from God, then it's for our good and our joy, not for our punishment. So let's, as a church, as brothers and sisters, celebrate God's good design of man as the head, protector, provider, spiritual leader of his home and woman as household manager, leader, administrator of the house, the, the manager of the inner world of the garden and see what the Lord might cultivate in and through us as we work together to, to bring His rule, His kingdom, if you will, to the earth. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, these things are hard things and hard to live hard to understand, hard to swallow. Certainly our culture will not give us any points for living like this. So I pray that you would help us. Send the Helper, Holy Spirit. Come and help us, instruct us, guide our hearts and our minds. I pray that our church would be full of homes that reflect your beautiful design, where men are laying down their lives, where where men men are willing to suffer for the provision, protection, and spiritual leadership of their homes. And where women joyfully joyfully follow, joyfully come under that authority. Lord, I pray for our single brothers and sisters, many of whom long to be married. I pray that you would provide for them godly husbands, godly wives, where they can live these things out. But I also pray in the meantime they would, They would put to death the lie that they are somehow a second-class citizen until they're married. Lord, please don't let them believe that. Help us to do all we can to live life together, single and married, so that we best reflect your beautiful and creative diversity in the church and the power of the gospel that unites us across all kinds of sociological lines. So Holy Spirit, come teach us, drive these things deep into our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.